Welcome to Whores Talk Horror. We're not really whores. We just like wordplay. Hello, welcome to Horrors Talk Horror. I'm Sharon. And I'm Melinda. And this episode is going to be all about writer and director Mike Flanagan. This is our first time doing an entire episode devoted to one director. We picked Flanagan because he has become one of our new favorite horror writers and directors, especially after watching The Haunting of Hill House and Dr. Sleep, where he cemented himself as a brilliant screenwriter who is not afraid to take beloved horror movies and books and adapt them to the screen in refreshing and inventive ways. We will get more in depth about Hill House and Dr. Sleep, along with all of his other work during this episode. Also, here is your one and only warning. There will be spoilers. Sorry. It's just really hard to talk about a director's work in depth without really delving into his films. So be warned. <laughs> yes, that's right. And speaking of Dr. Sleep, some of these movies we've been dying to talk about with each other, but kept saying, no, 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 no wait, let, let's save it for the episode. So I'm excited, but also relieved, because I've wanted to talk about Dr. Sleep so bad with you, Sharon, and, and Spencer just saw Hill House, what, like last week? So there's going to be a lot of firsts here, uh, tons of geeking out, and as Sharon said, spoilers unavoidably, so let's do this. Mindy, do you want to go through the resources that we used? Yeah, sure. There's quite a few. We can post them in the comments for this episode. Um, ScreenRant.com. In an article, Mike Flanagan's movies ranked best to worst. Uh, Slashfilm.com. I'm just going to go through the basic websites and then we'll post the actual article links. Uh, GQ.com. Denofgeek.com. Uh, IMDb. Our old favorite Wikipedia. Thanks, Wikipedia. Lovecraftzine.com. Deadline.com. And good old filmschoolrejects.com. Let's talk about Mike Flanagan's background, uh, or as I now lovingly refer to him as Flanman. <laughs> uh, this comes right from IMDb and Wikipedia. Flanagan was born in Salem, Massachusetts, which I think every interview I've read with him, the interviewer is like, ah, wink, wink, nudge, nudge, Fl Salem, no wonder you're a horror director. <laughs> But he was. Um, in 19, he was born in 1978 to Timothy and Laura Flanagan. The family moved around frequently as his father was in the U.S. Coast Guard. The family finally settled in Bowie, Maryland. As a child, he would shoot and edit short movies on VHS. Aww. Uh, in high school in, is it Severin, Maryland? I think that's how you say it. Severin. Sounds, yep. Probably. Apologize Sorry. to anyone who lives there. <laughs> apologies to anyone who lives there. Um, he was active in the school's drama. Not because you live there. Apologies <laughs> because we might have mispronounced it. Let's. <laughs> we Thank you for clarifying. You know nothing about your city. Yes. Um, he was active in his school's drama department there, which is no surprise. He also anchored the school's morning television show and produced commercials and short videos for the students. Uh, a graduate of Townsend University's Electronic Media and Film Department, he began his film career in 2000 with Make Believe at the age of 21. His follow-up, Still Life, from 2001, was an award-winning digital feature shot in and around Baltimore. 
Flanagan then produced television programming for Discovery and ESPN. In 2002 and 2003, he wrote and directed the award-winning feature film Ghosts of Hamilton Street about a troubled writer who questions his sanity as people in his life vanish without a trace. And it seems he is the only one who realizes it. Ooh, I have to look that up. Later that year, Mike was the director of photography for the cult hit Chainsaw Sally by writer-director Jimmy O. Burrell. Mike moved from Baltimore to Los Angeles the day after Chainsaw Sally wrapped and almost immediately found work directing and editing The Glebe Show for National Lampoon Networks and several reality television programs as well as regional commercials. In 2005, Flanagan turned to the horror genre for the first time with Oculus, Chapter 3, The Man with the Plan, an applauded short film that is just the beginning of an ambitious horror anthology, which eventually became the inspiration for the 2013 feature film Oculus. In 2010, after raising funds on Kickstarter, he wrote and directed the applauded indie horror film Absentia, which he credits with establishing his career. Absentia led to Oculus in 2013 and Before I Wake in 2016. Flanagan's critically acclaimed Hush from 2016 was released exclusively on Netflix, which led to the online streaming service producing Flanagan's adaptation of Stephen King's Gerald's Game in 2017. He is married to actress Kate Siegel, the lead in Hush, and she also has roles in almost all of his other films. The two have two children together, a son and a daughter. Flanagan also has a son from relationship with absentia actress Courtney Bell. If you want to hear more about Flanagan's childhood and his inspiration for becoming a horror movie writer and director, I definitely recommend listening to the episode of the Visitations podcast hosted by Elijah Wood and Daniel Noah, where they interview him. It was really, really interesting, and he delves a lot deeper into his childhood and how he got interested in horror, and I'm pretty sure we've mentioned Visitations podcast on here before, um, but I would just recommend that anyways. There's also really good episodes with Guillermo del Toro and... uh, Taika Waititi. Oh, yeah. And And John Landis. Yep, yep. Uh, that was actually a really, really good one. I found out a very interesting fact about uh, actor Christopher Lee that I did not know about. So check uh, check out that podcast if you are into horror, uh, especially if you're kind of interested in directors and the behind the behind the scenes uh, side of horror movies. Agreed. There were a few things that came up during the Flanagan interview that really struck me, which I'll come back to a little later in our discussion. But yes, it was a great interview. Um, I also really enjoyed his interview on last podcast on the left promoting Dr. Sleep. Uh, Naturally, there are a lot of laughs in that one. It's super fun and enjoyable. All right. So let's start with his first movie, Absentia. Mike Flanagan's first full-length horror film that he wrote and directed. It was released in 2011, funded in part by over 300 donors on Kickstarter. Originally, they wanted to raise $15,000 over 30 days and ended up raising $25,000, so more than a third of their final budget. The movie was made for only $70,000, which, I mean, is a lot of money to you and me, uh, but... When you're talking about making a movie, that's not a very big budget at all. Right. And the film was mostly filmed in his Glendale, California apartment. The 
overall plot of the movie is it's about a woman named Trisha and her sister Callie who begin to link a mysterious tunnel in their neighborhood to a series of disappearances, including that of Trisha's husband. Trisha's husband, Daniel, has been missing for seven years. Her younger sister, Callie, a recovering addict, comes to live with her as the pressure mounts to finally declare her husband dead in absentia, which is a term that I never heard before this movie. And basically what that means is when a person is legally declared dead despite the absence of direct proof of the person's death, such as the person's remains. Trisha is trying to move on with her life. She is very much pregnant and in a new relationship. Meanwhile, her sister Callie finds herself drawn to an ominous tunnel near their apartment. If she begins to link it to other mysterious disappearances, it becomes clear that Daniel's presumed death might be anything but natural. The ancient force at work in the tunnel might have its sights set on Callie and Trisha, and Daniel might be suffering a fate far worse than death in its grasp. It stars Courtney Bell, who is actually seven or eight months pregnant at the time they filmed this. And she's also been in a lot of his other movies, Before I Wake, Oculus. And if you didn't know, you'll see that Flanagan uses the same actors over and over again in a lot of his movies. Catherine Parker plays Callie. Uh, She's also in The Haunting of Hill House and Oculus. And then Doug Jones, who's probably the most well-known actor in Absentia. He's a regular in a lot of Guillermo del Toro's movies. So, uh, yeah, and they're all, they all do a great job in this movie. I actually didn't know that he was in a lot of Gil- I, del Toro's movies. Sorry, <laughs> pronunciation is hard. He plays the fawn in Pan's Labyrinth. Oh, wow. He also plays the, um, the guy. The pale man. Yeah, the pale man. I didn't, uh, yeah, with the eyeballs in his hands in no. that movie. He is in Hellboy. He's in, uh, oh, he's the fish in Shape of Water. Right. You didn't know who he was because he's always <laughs> covered in makakeup. Yeah. And he's amazing. Yes, Fair he enough. Really is. Fair enough. Good to know. Doug Thank Jones, you. if you're listening, we want to interview you. <laughs> <laughs> and I learned something new today. Awesome. So I went into this movie cold. I knew nothing about the plot. I thought it was a really good low-budget horror movie. Um, At first, I was kind of distracted by just the way it looked because it does look kind of low-budget. Correct me if I'm wrong, Mindy, but is the camera work mostly handheld? You know, I don't remember, but I think so. It looks that way. It does look that way, but... It's so well acted, so it makes up for the look of the film. Basically, I I feel if you can find good actors, the budget of your movie isn't entirely that important. And in an interview with Mike Davis from the Lovecraft Easing, Flanagan said the cast generally had only one or two takes to get a scene correct, and then we had to move on because of our horrible shooting schedule. So that just makes the acting even more impressive, knowing that most of the movie was shot in one or two takes. Wow. And by horrible shooting schedule, he means she was very pregnant, and he had to get it done fast. <laughs> oh, yeah. That's yeah. good call. I didn't even think about that. I yeah. just kind of figured, because of like the budget and time constraints, they just you know needed that to make too. this. It was literally like... A race until she pops. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't even think of that. All right. Yep, that that makes sense, Spencer. Um, I also thought that 
this movie had a much more different feel than a lot of his more current work. It's a lot grittier and less polished, but that could also be because of the budget. But with this movie, it really, really worked. Agreed. Uh, In the same interview, he talks a lot about how Lovecraft is a huge influence on his work and a lot of his other work as well. Quote, His depiction of the vast expanses of existence beyond the veil of our perception have influenced an awful lot of my writing. Absentia deals with a lot of those ideas through an admittedly minimalist lens. And he also discusses in his interview on the Visitations podcast about how Fraggle Rock and the episode about the terrible tunnel and the trapped ghosts of all the Fraggles basically became Absentia. I would classify this as a psychological horror. Flanagan relies heavily on mood to create tension and fear in this film rather than jump scares. He's great at using mood and emotions to raise tension in all of his films, and he does it really, really well, especially in Hill House, which I can't wait to talk about (laughs) later, uh, even though I'm pretty sure we've discussed that show on here before. But also... This could be why he uses the same actors in a lot of his work because they are all amazing and great at being able to convey a wide range of emotions depending on their respective roles. I mean, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. If you're able to work with someone and vibe with them and you just know what you're going to get from them, it makes your job as a director so much easier, which is why people like David Lynch and... Christopher Guest, Tim Burton, Rob Zombie, they kind of have the same actors in all of their films. Um, The last thing I'm going to say about this is I've been doing a lot of running lately, and I would never (laughs) run through that tunnel. It's the most terrifying part of the movie for me because I'm definitely way more scared of real-life horror than any sort of monster or creature. And if I was a rapist or a serial killer, this tunnel would be my friend because it would help me trap my victim. (laughs) So, so yeah, that tunnel was creepy as fuck. And I can see why that tunnel kind of was an inspiration for wanting to make a horror film around it. Yeah. And he lived down the street from it. That's, I'd be creeped out every day. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, I love this movie uh, and I agree don't jog in tunnels period just don't Um, before I dive in can we revisit your mention of the visitation podcast and the interview where Flanagan reveals that his inspiration for absentia was a fucking episode of Fraggle Rock (laughs) Um, the, the episode in question is called the terrible tunnel And naturally, I immediately found clips online, and it's actually pretty creepy. I think I remember that episode from back in the day. Yeah, I think I do too. Watching the clips, it it felt familiar to me. But like, actually, when they get sucked into the tunnel, I literally went, oh my god, he really did remake a Fraggle Rock episode. (laughs) Like, not remake, but it's, it's a similar, it's, but it's creepy for little kids. Holy shit. Well, in the way that he was like describing it in that interview was basically like 
all these like ghosts of all these fraggles that got stuck in this tunnel they just live there and they can't escape so it's just like their ghosts there for like all eternity just like haunting this tunnel and that's kind of what inspired him to make absentia so uh yeah if you don't know what fraggle rock is go look it up and go watch that episode and see how it compares to absentia <laughs> that's pretty dark i mean i know like doctor who on the the bbc that's technically a kid's show and that shit gets dark but like yeah that's kind of heavy for kids like your friends are stuck for all eternity because they got trapped by a monster wow that's what they like to do in the 70s and 80s they like to make fucked up dark shows for children i mean look at the dark crystal yeah yeah. which was like i had that shit on repeat wow that says a lot about me probably Uh, All right, back to the movie. (laughs) Anyway, I watched this, I think, a total of three times. I watched this on Shudder before really knowing uh, who Flanagan was and heard great things about the movie. Whenever it would come up in my list, I'd always say, wait, I've seen this, right? Um, It was way over a year ago, I think, since I first watched it. And so time, life, a pandemic, shit got in the way. Probably pretty sure the second time I tried rewatching, I fell asleep because it had been a long day. But then I started to prep for this episode and I figured third time's a charm, which it was. Um, That said, about 20 minutes into the most recent viewing, I A, realized that I remembered a lot more than I thought I did plot wise, but B was delighted to realize this fact in no way detracted from my enjoyment of the film. My anxiety would argue otherwise, as it's a total slow burn, but I was totally in it from the start. One of the issues I have with most scary movies these days, original or as in most cases, a remake, is the over-reliance on jump scares. It feels like a cop-out to me. Yes, they technically scare you because you jump or scream, and it's fun. It's not that I don't like jump scares. I just prefer a little foreplay. Uh, Sharon and I have been pulling jump scares on each other for years. Uh, It's my favorite. (laughs) And she's good at it. And Absentia delivers. What initially feels like your usual low-budget indie film, slow burn, moody plot, slowly reveals itself to be underlying feelings of tension, danger, and dread. Mike Flanagan's movies stick with you, be it a feeling, an image, whatever. Try as you might, you can't get them out of your head. Seeing as this was Flanagan's first, quote, major movie, It's an impressive outing and one that keeps me creeped out from start to finish. That's because Mike Flanagan is a horror director who's worth a damn. Dude knows what he's doing. One last observation on Absentia from a technical standpoint. Flanagan clearly knows how to use sound and build a mood and is no slouch when it comes to visuals and cinematography. There's this one scene at night where we see the stillness of Trisha's neighborhood in early evening All of the lights are turning on in houses, and there's a moment where we see a shot of leaves on a tree, the light from a nearby street lamp shining on it, and the darkening blue sky in the background. And it's gorgeous to watch. But y'all are probably bored just listening to me describe it. I love that shit. David Lynch, granted, after decades of work, is a master at this. Whether on a large or small scale, I love what Flanagan does with imagery and cinematography, which to me, is a sign of a truly talented director. We love Absentia. Sharon, what do we got next? 
Next up is Oculus, which was released in 2013. It was filmed in just 24 days. Don't think there was any uh, impending uh, births (laughs) (laughs) that sped this movie along. Uh, He's just, you know, he got this movie done pretty quickly. Uh, The plot comes from IMDb. A woman tries to exonerate her brother who is convicted of murder by proving that the crime was committed by a supernatural phenomenon. Oculus was based on a short screenplay titled Oculus Chapter 3, The Man with the Plan from 2006, which uh, Spencer, make a note to try and find this somewhere because I actually want to watch this. I do too. I think it's just like 30 minutes or less. Um, I can't remember if I did try to find it or not, but yeah, we should do some, we should do some Googling later. They do have the trailer for the short film on IMDb, which looked interesting, but I want to see the whole thing. Yeah, me too. But the short film is about a man who sets out to prove an antique mirror is haunted. It was written by Mike Flanagan and Jeff Seedman. Flanagan, along with Jeff Howard, adapted the short into the screenplay for the full length film. So the film stars uh, Brenton Thwaites. Apologies to Brenton if I didn't say your name right. Um, he is an Australian actor who, according to IMDb, shares my birthday. Hey, hey. Uh, he's been in a bunch of other stuff, but nothing that I've seen, I don't think. But there you go. Karen Gillan, known most recently from Guardians of the Galaxy and the Avengers, but is most importantly Amy fucking Pond, the 11th Doctor's companion and awesome Rory's wife on Doctor Who. Katie Sackoff, famous for her role as the teen single mother speaker in what can (laughs) technically be called an award-winning film, sort of, 15 and Pregnant, a Lifetime movie masterpiece Sharon and I reviewed a few weeks back. Oh, yeah. So if you haven't listened to that episode, go back and listen to it. Yeah. And she, she, she's in it for like a total of what, five minutes? Maybe. Yeah. Yeah. I think you can find <laughs> the clip on YouTube if you don't want to bother with the whole movie. Um, Award winning film. Technically, you're right, though. It is. I know. <laughs> it is. Oh, yeah. And she's fracking Kara Thrace from Battlestar Galactica, which will and she will also have a role in season two of Mandalorian. Woot woot. Uh, haven't seen either of those. Uh, you're lost, baby. You got to do it. The film also stars a few Flanagan regulars like Kate Siegel, Catherine Parker, Annalise Basso, to name a few. So the definition of Oculus is, wait, you know what? Actually, Spencer, you may have uh, remembered, if you are a regular listener, has his own podcast. He actually has two now. Uh, but one of them is the Dictionary Podcast, where he literally just reads the fucking dictionary from A to Z. Um, so you're really good at reading definitions from the dictionary. Yeah, I'm sure there's a lot of crossover between your fans and my fans. <laughs> well, maybe there will be now. What, you're getting... You're getting a free plug, so would you like to read the definitions of Oculus? Okay, the definitions, there are three of them, of Oculus. One, a circular or oval window. (laughs) Number two, a circular opening at the top of a dome. And then number three, an eye, E-Y-E, like the thing in your head. Good job. (laughs) It's like you've done this before. (laughs) Just a few times. Uh, Yeah, so that's just a little taste of what you can get if you listen to the Dictionary Podcast. Good plug, good plug. Episodes every day, and they're relatively short. (laughs) They will help you fall asleep at night, for sure. 
Anyways, a little bit of trivia before we discuss. Sorry, Spencer. <laughs> I love your. Hey, no. I, I love your podcast. <laughs> yeah, right. You don't ever even listen to it. <laughs> I, I, I'll take some free promotion. Uh, a little bit of trivia um, before we get into the plot of the film. Mike Flanagan has actually included the mirror from Oculus as an Easter egg in most of his work. It's in the basement of Ouija, Origin of Evil. It's the headboard in Gerald's game. It can be seen on the wall of Hill House while Nell is dancing through... Uh, Hill House <laughs> and in, in Dr. Sleep is Dan begins approaching the gold room in the overlook you can see the mirror hanging in the hallway on the right and now that I just watched all these movies to do this episode I didn't know any of that until after I started writing this up so now I want to rewatch all those movies and see if I can spot the mirror I was just gonna say the same and also the, it's a pretty he- like it's a pretty big looking mirror and I wonder if it was he found it like as an antique like if it's a real antique or just like a set piece but if it was a real antique I was gonna say he probably does it because he's just trying to get his money worth out of this like huge ass <laughs> prop that now he has to deal with um, so he good. also seems like he has a really good sense of humor and yes. likes to put a lot of Easter eggs in his movies, which we will uh, actually mention a bunch of those throughout this episode. Yeah, but good way to be resourceful, Mike, Mike Flanagan. Way to go with that. Reuse, recycle. Exactly. <laughs> Reduce. Exactly. Um, I saw this a few years ago before I knew who Mike Flanagan even was. And I remember thinking that it was okay um, in preparation for this episode, I gave it a rewatch this past week, and I was surprised actually at how much better it was the second time around. The film does a great job deciding what to explain and what to leave vague. Um, one example that, while I haven't checked Reddit yet, I'm sure someone has obsessed with what the fuck is the deal with the mirror? How is it made? Is it haunted by the main woman that we see or something else? My answer to that question, I really don't care. It's destroyed that family, and it's scary as fuck, and as far as I'm concerned, that's all I need to know. Well, I actually uh, have an answer for you, even though you don't care. (laughs) Alrighty then. Because someone might care. Mm. So I actually saw this on IMDb. I don't use Reddit. Um, But according to IMDb, and I'm sure this same thing is talked about in different Reddit threads and there's probably very similar answers there. But if you want to do more digging Mindy, you can go on Reddit and let me know. But according to IMDb, no one knows who created it. No one knows what possesses it, but one man knows what it can do and he's going to prove it, which Uh. is basically what I read to you earlier was kind of the premise of the short film that they made of Oculus and also on IMDb under frequently asked questions, the question of where did the mirror come from? According to Kaylee, who is the uh, main female lead in the movie, its origin is unknown. The trail starts in London in 1754 when it was owned by Philip Lasser, which is why it became known as the Lasser glass. Lasser was found a year later, burned beyond recognition in his fireplace. From there, it turned up at various times and places from 1864 through 1975 until it finally shows up in the Russell's house in 2002. All these appearances coincide with multiple gruesome deaths. 
I should probably clarify and say that it's not that I don't care. It's just that to me, it didn't matter. Um, whereas in some situations, you're like, no, I kind of need to know the origin of that. But like, to me, I was like, it scared the fuck out of me. It didn't matter. So I don't want to say I don't care. It just wasn't, you know, you know what yeah, I mean? It doesn't affect how you feel about the movie. Uh, you know, the story is still impactful without knowing that that you know, or more more detail about the backstory. By the way, yeah. they call it the Lasser Glass. They missed a perfect nickname. It could just be called Glasser. Right? Sorry. I know. But they're actually actually though there's a, a performance artist musician that goes by that name. So maybe they didn't want to do that. I just thought of that because I have some of their music on my phone. But yeah. Good joke, Spencer. And that is a missed opportunity, I think, for sure. Hilarious, Spencer. Thank you. <laughs> anyway. You can hear more jokes like that on the dictionary. <laughs> and I'm not even kidding. <laughs> He's not. <laughs> <laughs> this is why we love you. Anyway, back to why I like this movie a lot more after a second watch. Uh, running both past and present timelines at once was kind of genius. And that's what this film does. It's made clear from the beginning that these two siblings faced some kind of extreme trauma in their past. And as the movie progresses, we can guess more and more what might have happened. Then to have both past and present reach their massively devastating conclusions at the same time is fucking intense. I also think I read somewhere that running both of the timelines, past and present, together uh, was something that the studio actually wanted to nix in favor of something more linear. But Flanagan insisted on keeping his idea, and good call, bro. It worked. Yeah, I agree that the concurrent timelines... Um was a really good idea and it was done really really seamlessly and I would have hated to have been the editor on this movie <laughs> because it would have been so tedious and like I mean just trying to follow the notes I mean I've seen Spencer do editing at home on he did uh editing on one of his friends movies and that was told in a linear fashion and just doing something like that is just so much work and so time consuming so whoever edited this film great job yeah also this is something that is almost in everything that I think Flanagan has made he uses lots of flashbacks and flash forwards between childhood trauma and present day also there's the recurring theme of mental illness versus supernatural or preternatural phenomena which is a theme in Oculus as well as a lot of his other movies uh, in Oculus we first see logical explanations for everything that has happened like the mental decline of the siblings mother and the death of their dog uh, their father killing their mother I said there would be lots of spoilers so <laughs> <laughs> if you haven't seen this movie too bad you were warned um, it could possibly make sense that it is just mental illness that runs in the family until it's not possible anymore. And there's a point where that becomes very evident. And it's very similar to Hill House, but instead of a house driving people to madness, it's a mirror. Well, and to be fair, uh, the novel, The Haunting of Hill House, has that theme, and it straddles that line in a really uncomfortable yet entertaining way. And Flanagan's a fan of that book. But I'm going to be totally honest here. I probably wasn't really paying much attention the first time I watched this. 
because I completely forgot about that fucking fingernail scene and the poor dogs. Put a pin in that because we are going to cover Flanagan's complete and utter disdain for human hands later. (laughs) Um, In terms of the editor of Oculus, first I want to shout out Parallel Editing for the win. Uh, (laughs) Yeah, right. That's always very effective. Um, Mike Flanagan was the editor. Holy Uh, shit, really? Yeah. That makes sense because he knows the story inside out. So that makes sense. Okay, well now, now he's even more impressive than we thought. You know what? We should do an entire episode about him. We should do an entire episode about him. That is a great idea, Mindy. <laughs> <laughs> um, listening to Flanagan's interview on that Visitations podcast, the guys asked what for Flanagan makes for good horror. His response was lo- lovely, in my opinion. He says, quote, The genre, referring to the horror genre, is at its best when it's focused on something else and the horror happens around it. Agreed, buddy. Abso-fucking-lutely. And I think they even bring up um, a prime example and probably the most famous example of this is the original Night of the Living Dead. Yes. Which is a commentary on race relations in the country told through the horror genre. Yes, yes, good good point. Oculus brought that quote to mind for me um, because the idea of a family just living their lives and then this object learns to play on everyone's insecurities, worst fears, fuck with their reality even, that just, it just scares the crap out of me. And the scene with the mom, it the first time the mirror like talks shit to her, still like just breaks my heart and terrifies me yeah there was some definite like very creepy uh what am I trying to say just like haunting images yes that just kind of like lasted with you um in that movie he's very good at doing that so the question that I had about this movie was why didn't they just drop the anvil on the mirror to destroy it before it became even stronger by feeding off the siblings. If they had the whole thing figured out and the anvil was on the timer and they saw the plants dying and that they knew the mirror was feeding off life, just destroy it right then and there. I do think I partially found the answer to this, but Mindy, maybe you can um, answer the part that this does not answer. So from IMDb, there was a question and the response was basically, quote, the mirror's powerful illusions make it impossible for a sentient being to directly attack it, as shown by the young Tim and Kaylee thinking they are battering the mirror with the golf clubs, but in reality, they are only hitting the wall beside it. Apparently, the lacer glass can only be harmed by a non-sentient object, as shown when Alan's body falls against the mirror just as he dies, cracking the bottom right corner. This is why Kaylee needed to rig the kill switch device in order to destroy the lacer gas. <laughs> lacer glass. Just say glasser. I know, I was going to say that too. Let's just call it glasser. Spencer's going to try and coin that. To destroy the lasser glass. But again, she underestimates the influence that the mirror's illusions have on her and Tim. So this explains what can destroy the mirror, but it still doesn't explain why they didn't just drop the anvil right away, except 
for that it would have been a really short movie and he already <laughs> made a short film about this so I guess he wanted to make a full length film about this mirror but Mindy what do you think so I have a few theories about this um, but this is just for fun discussion I truly don't think that there is a right or wrong answer so hear me out Kaylee's story is that she wants to kill whatever's in the mirror and clear her brother's name, right? Mm -hmm. And I know that revenge can fuel people to do all sorts of crazy shit, but Kaylee's plan was elaborate as fuck. Clearly, (laughs) she's been busy this whole time. Her brother's been in the institution. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, sure. Yet not once did Kaylee think, wait, hold up. Isn't this a titanically bad idea? Not to mention extraordinarily fucking dangerous. Clearly, I have no reference for this. My mom doesn't buy antique mirrors. But I can empathize with wanting to make things right for her brother or even avenge her parents. Speaking of, she watched that mirror destroy her parents. If it were me, no matter how devastated, I wouldn't go near that thing. Agreed. And if an evil mirror ate my parents, they sure as hell wouldn't want me coming after them. Well, it technically didn't eat the parents. It well maybe ate their, ate their souls? Or... Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. But still, like, fuck your brother's rec- reputation. And it looked like he probably would have agreed with that. Just take what seems to be a rather large inheritance, s- sell the horror house, and get the fuck out of there. Why go to the trouble of all the research and concocting this really elaborate, really dangerous plan in an unpredictable environment is it me or is this a tad obsessive and kind of insane agreed (laughs) okay so could she have been kind of crazy like legitimately like have a psychological problem there's nothing to hint at any mental illness in the flashbacks but she's been through a lot of trauma and trauma's a bitch and regardless of what her opinion is about the mirror her brother did have mental help after her, their parents' death, and she didn't. A point that was made multiple times throughout the movie. Mm-hmm. And obviously, she she probably had some PTSD as well, That so that was not dealt with. Yeah, totally. But then again, they would say that to throw her off, wouldn't they? Mm-hmm. Mm. Was she so lost in her grief and rage that she held tight to her childhood promise as a way to deal and cope with the death to give her purpose. This is my theory. I think the mirror played her long game style. Maybe the mirror got to her as a kid, then fueled her obsession to research and find the mirror, develop an elaborate plan and ultimately bring her brother back to the house. I think the mirror just wanted to finish the job. Uh, Yeah, I, I can agree with that. And that actually kind of answers the rest of my question quite nicely. Um, Yeah, it could have been once you're in the presence of the mirror, maybe it just sticks with you throughout life. If you get away from it, if you're able to escape it somehow, it'll bring you back to it. Well, and this just occurred to me. I feel like there was one scene, and you're right, I want to rewatch all of these movies now to look for the mirror. But, like, I feel like there the was... The mirror's w- pretty obvious in, in this movie. Well, right, right, right. <laughs> right, but I feel like in this movie, though, there's a scene where she's on the, the landing of the stairs and her eyes look kind of glittery, like, in the flashback. Like, her brother looks up and sees her. I could so that's why I mentioned a rewatch because 
maybe they are hinting at that. But it's still not like very, very obvious. This is still totally my theory. But mm. you mean when she was young? Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. But regardless of that, one thing's for sure. The fact that we're still talking and theorizing about this means the real winner here is Mike Flanagan. Yay, Mike Flanagan. <laughs> okay, so what's our next movie, Sharon? All right, the next movie and maybe my favorite of his movies, although it's kind of hard to decide. Yeah, maybe we'll each name our favorite at the end of this episode. But the next one is Hush. Did you just tell me to be quiet? No. It was a bad joke. Keep Sorry. Hush. Hush. Oh, Jesus Christ, that went over my head. (laughs) Sorry. Anyways... So Hush is one of three Flanagan movies released in 2016. It was filmed in just 18 days. So basically Flanagan's rivaling James Wan here in a competition for horror writer director who hates sleeping the most and just (laughs) wants to work. Uh, Don't know how either of them do it. So the basic plot of the movie is a deaf and mute writer named Maddie retreats into the woods, a cabin in the woods. Actually, it's a really nice house in the woods. Totally nice to write another book and she ends up having to fight for her life in silence when a masked killer suddenly appears at her doorstep. So I loved this movie the first time I saw it and I just rewatched it a week ago for this episode and I like the movie even more on rewatch. There's a lot of attention to detail and conscious choices that Flanagan made to set this movie apart from your typical home invasion movie. First off, and most obviously, he made the main protagonist deaf and mute, which not being able to use one of your main senses during a home invasion type situation is terrifying, but also it's not an entirely new idea. It was done in 1967 in the movie Wait Until Dark with Audrey Hepburn, but it's definitely not something that you see in movies all too often. And definitely, as I said, makes the situation even more frightening. I love how in the beginning of the movie, when Maddie, the main character, played brilliantly by Kate Siegel, Flanagan's wife, she's making dinner and the scene focuses on every single sound she's making, the chopping, the cutting, the sauteing, and he accentuates the sounds uh, and heightens them even more than normal. And then, you know, these are everyday sounds that all of us who are able to hear take for granted. And then slowly, 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 all the sounds just fade away into nothing, which really puts the viewer into Maddie's world. I also love Flanagan's decision to make the voice in Maddie's head her mother's voice. Mm, yes. So, That's her source of guidance. At the end of the film, she hears her mom's voice going through all her different options for escape plans, which is pretty much like a nightly thing for me while I'm sitting on the couch watching TV or brushing my teeth at night or laying in bed. You know, what what escape plan can I use during the situation if someone broke into my house right now? Just, you know, totally normal thing that all grownups do. Right, Mindy? Throw Spencer in front of them and then make a run for it. Yeah, that's her plan for everything. That's always my plan. Totally kidding. And once again, Flanagan does a great job with using emotion and mood to create the tension in this film. Once 
the man, as he is credited in the film, basically the uh, intruder, the the killer, figures out that Maddie can't hear. He decides to just completely fuck with her in a cat and mouse type game to completely terrify her before killing her because killing her is just like not enough to him. And as the viewer, you really, really feel all of her emotions. Kate Siegel's performance is absolutely amazing because she conveys so much with no dialogue. And just a little bit of trivia here to piggyback on that, the film contains less than 15 minutes of dialogue, meaning that over 70 minutes of the movie occur without a single word being spoken. Damn. And the movie is still terrifying. Flanagan uses sound at first, but then he's like, okay, if you think this scene is scary now, let's just cut the sound so you can't hear where the psycho killer is, which really takes you inside the head of Maddie. And what's even more terrifying is she can't even hear if she is making sounds. So if she's trying to escape outside, she can't tell like how loud her footsteps are or, you know, it just makes it that much more difficult for her to try and escape this nightmare of a situation. I hadn't actually even thought about that fact. That's a good point, Sharon. Thank you. Yeah, that, <laughs> I mean, I I was like so engrossed in this movie on my rewatch that I was like, just like trying to like take all this in. I was like, holy shit. Like, because that's the one thing, like, you know, when I'm making my escape plans <laughs> at <laughs> night while I'm sitting on my couch watching TV is like, if, you know, I heard someone coming in, a window and I needed to go hide somewhere is like, you need to be really fucking quiet. Yeah. And if you can't hear, if you're making noise, like you're totally fucked in a situation like that. No, I hadn't even thought about that. Cause yeah, she's in, as you mentioned, a cabin in the woods, always a good idea for a retreat. Um, and she like the leaves on the ground, crunching all that stuff. I just hadn't thought about that. Really yeah. Branches, yeah. you know, she has to like, you know, opening windows to like get out of the house, like in certain scenes or doors, like is it making a a noise? Is it creaking? Like you have no idea. But also the use of sound in movies in general, especially a horror movie is such an important part of that. Yep. And then to take a lot of it out is honestly, it might've been just an experiment for him. Like, let me see if I can actually make this work without using sound. Mm, Yeah. Good point. Yeah, I don't I don't really know like the impetus for why they chose to make her uh, not be able to to hear um, if there was any, you know, specific uh, meaning behind that. I actually didn't do any sort of research to to find that out. Maybe you want to look that up while we're finishing talking about this. Maybe he just thought, well, we've got a lot of Cabin in the Woods movies, but what can we add to it that would be a differentiating factor take away one of his senses yeah the thing that really scared me though was the french doors in her house that had no window coverings oh my god i'm sorry i do not know why people do this like if i go for a walk at night there are so many houses that i see that have no window coverings they have all the lights on so when you're outside you can see everything that's going on inside the house yeah but the people who are inside cannot see what is outside when I used to house it for my aunt that kind of like lived out in the boonies she had the same thing she had a deck on the back of her house with these French doors 
with no window coverings. And I was like, there could literally be someone standing outside the door with a butcher's knife in their hand, three feet away from the glass. And I would have no idea, but they can see every move that I make. So I basically decided that, uh, when we were able to ever afford to build our dream home, you know, when we win the lottery, it's just basically going to be a panic house where every room is just a panic room. <laughs> I am, I am totally down with that idea. And I agree with you 100% on that. I have such a thing about like that, that exactly that people having these big windows that have no covering because when they hear a noise, they always fucking turn the inside light on, which basically just like highlights you and shows your killer where you are. So mm-hmm. a never do that. And B cover your fucking windows, dudes. I know. Anyway, <laughs> I rant am, over. Yeah, exactly. Pet peeve of ours. Anyway, I am not a home invasion movie fan. Or torture porn, for that matter. But I, I can count. I think I can count on one, like one hand the number of home invasion films I've actually sat through and that I like. Sharon rode my ass about watching this. I'm not joking. And I insisted it wasn't my thing. But then she insisted even more, and finally I relented. And the fact that I've even seen Hush on purpose all the way through twice should speak to whether I liked it or not. Flanagan's movies almost universally feature female protagonists and smart ones at that. Hush follows suit, but it adds the caveat, of course, that that Maddie has a disability. Uh, It becomes almost immediately obvious that Hush is is not about to exploit the fact that Maddie's death, which felt refreshing because there's more to Maddie as we will soon learn. Uh, Hush is a damn good thriller. Nothing felt forced or contrived, and I cannot emphasize enough how refreshing it is to watch a female protagonist who feels realistic. Maddie's no superhero. She's scared shitless, a pretty logical reaction given the circumstances, and has an understandable brief breakdown moment. Emphasis on brief. Girlfriend has her cry, then takes a deep breath, gets her wits about her, she strategizes. And these are some of my favorite sequences in the film. Essentially, quick cuts that appear to be real time. We watch as Maddie attempts to escape, fails, and then boom, quick, cut back to Maddie, still alive in her home, weighing her options. As a viewer, it's jarring in the best way possible and tells us more about who Maddie is, how she thinks, etc. Then there's Kate Siegel's performance into which she throws herself wholeheartedly. Dialogue, unnecessary. Siegel conveys every emotion in her physicality. I liked her character almost immediately, but not because the movie told me I had to. Hush succeeds as a film largely in part to Siegel, in my opinion. The reason I don't dig home invasion movies is because I'm constantly criticizing the characters. To quote Sidney Prescott from Scream, watching victims, quote, run up the stairs when they should be running out the front door is insulting. And it really is. Sharon always says to me, yeah, but you don't know what you would do under that kind of stress or fear. And she's totally right. I don't. But Hush is an example of what I really, really hope I'd do if I'd ever be in a (laughs) fucked up murdery situation. 
Right? Yeah. I mean, not that all that Maddie's plans work, and she takes a beating for sure, but she keeps fighting, keeps thinking, and when attacked in her kitchen, she fucking uses her kitchen knives to defend herself. Thank God. They and she nobody- doesn't drop them next to the killer and then walk away. <laughs> I mean, there's so many times. Oh, anyway, that's a whole other... That's a whole other episode, my anger against that <laughs> kind of stuff. She's not invincible, for sure. She's not fearless, and she's but she's not stupid either. Judging from the film's opening, she's not a great cook either. Well. <laughs> but she knows how to use cutlery when it matters. <laughs> Hush had me freaked out from start to finish, and not once did I yell at my TV, what the fuck, you dumbass? So that alone makes it like genius in my opinion (laughs) agreed spencer did you find our answer yeah i found an interview that um both flanagan and siegel had with a bloody disgusting.com because they actually wait a little bit of trivia that i think i know is they went to the stanley hotel in colorado which is where yes uh stephen king was inspired to write the shining and where he actually wrote the shining didn't they go there and stay in like the same room that King did for yeah. like a week to write this movie? Oh, I, I don't, I didn't get that far. I don't know. Oh, okay. I think I'm right. I remember <laughs> hearing that though, Sharon. Um, and cause he said in another interview, I heard that he said that he actually wants to see a ghost and he always wants to stay in the scariest rooms. So <laughs> yes, but I apologize for interrupting. What did you find out? I'll just say, yes, you are correct, Sharon. <laughs> So in this interview, um, I'll just try and sum it up as quickly as I can. They were out to dinner and they were talking about movies they like. And one of them was that movie, Wait Until Dark, that you mentioned. Yeah. Um, And so they were talking about that. And that was something that she wanted to do from an acting point of view uh, to, to be deaf. And it was something that he thought was interesting from a directing point of view. Um, and so basically, yeah, he thought it would be challenging as a director uh, to do something without dialogue or, you know, very minimal dialogue. And um, I will try and skim past. Oh, and then sound design was talked. They talked a lot about the sound design um, and how it it sells a movie. He says sound design really se- or she says sound design really sells a movie. So we were discussing ways to make sound design more of a character on a script level to really make sure that sound design is something that gets the weight it deserves. Um, it goes on, but yeah, that's essentially interesting. The, the thought process. Really quick, like, are they a match made in heaven? Because I kind of think that they seem to be. And that's a really good point about sound design because it's something that is so, I think, taken in subconsciously when you're watching a movie, but it's so important. And the fact that they had that discussion and thought about that if they ever break up, love is dead. That's all I'm saying. And they actually did discuss the idea of having the movie be with no sound whatsoever. Ooh. But then they realized that people would be then focusing on, or they'd be hyper aware of all the other sounds that are going around them yeah. instead of maybe focusing uh, on the movie. So you, you got to have a balance of yeah. some sound and using it in a, in a smart way, which I think they did. Very interesting. Yeah, that is interesting. Thank you, Spencerpedia. <laughs> Um, another testament to how good this movie is just uh, a little bit of trivia here William Friedkin director of The Exorcist was a big fan of Hush and encouraged people to watch it so that is like a huge compliment right there Um, also uh, some more 
Easter eggs. There's a quick shot of several books that the main character owns, among them the Stephen King novels Revival, Under the Dome, and most noticeably, Mr. Mercedes. Quick note back to uh, Absentia. There's a scene with Callie reading the comic book version of The Dark Tower by Marvel Comics, Mm. also based on the book series by Stephen King. Flanagan is obviously a huge Stephen King fan, so there are many nods to King in many of his movies, um, specifically the Dark Tower series. Mm -hmm. But of course, we also know that he directed two of King's novels as well, which we will be getting to shortly. Yes, stay tuned. Um, But first, we are going to talk about Ouija. Ouija? How do you actually pronounce this? Luigi. 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 I actually, I don't, I think it's Ouija. Ouija. I, I'm probably wrong. I don't know. Well, but I read somewhere that Ouija was taking from the French word yes and the German German word for yeah. yes. Yeah. So we huh. we we Ouija. I don't know. How about we just go ahead and say Ouija for the purposes of this episode? I always say Ouija, yeah. but I, I am. It's probably not correct. It's probably just how. Americans started mispronouncing it a long time ago, and now that's how everyone says it. Yeah, I agree. Uh, but for so, don't send us hate mail because we discussed <laughs> it. We under we understand it. May so- it we might not be saying it right, but we're really. But at least I, I'm going to speak for myself. I'm bad with words, so I'm going to go with Ouija for right now, just for sanity's sake. So, Ouija: Origin of Evil was also released in 2016. It's a prequel to the 2014 film. In full disclosure, I have not seen the first film. So, um, yeah, don't know if it's good or not. Uh, This film takes place in Debbie's house that was used in the first film. Don't know who the fuck Debbie is because, like I said, (laughs) did not see it. Uh, Only this is 50 years old. Earlier, it's set in 1967, Los Angeles. A widowed mother and her daughter start using a Ouija board to bolster their seance scam business, inviting an evil presence into their home, not realizing how dangerous it is. It stars Elizabeth Reeser, Lulu Wilson, Henry Thomas, Annalise Basso, and Kate Siegel, who have all acted in many of Flanagan's other movies. Um... But yeah, they're all in this movie, as well as Doug Jones, who was actually in this movie, but his scenes were cut. Flanagan revealed that the original cut of this movie was 130 minutes long, with 40 minutes being removed from the final cut. Doug Jones played the devil's doctor, and I'd actually be curious to watch a director's cut of this film just to see him because he's so good and creepy as fuck in all of his movies. Yeah, I was just thinking, oh shit, now do I have to look up Ouija and like buy the Blu-ray? Because I, I would love to see those scenes, actually. Oh, I didn't know that. Maybe it's online somewhere. Yeah, probably. I also did not see the other Ouija movie, and I really don't plan to. Um, I think this was my first Flanagan film, though, where I had a vague idea of who he even was. I actually championed this movie to Sharon. I saw it on a whim with some friends during a scary movie night. But I'd been hearing good things about the movie and that it was kind of a standalone, but still enjoyable regardless of the other films. I was like, let's do it. Pass the wine. About halfway through the movie, I turned to my friend and said, shit, if I had known this movie was so good, I would have watched the other one. To which she replied, oh, it's nothing like this. This movie is way better. 
Uh, knowing this was a prequel, I had low expectations in terms of character life expectancy. But damn, if I didn't end up liking all of the characters, which made the ending even more brutal than it actually is. I'd also like to give a shout out to Lulu Wilson, because hot damn, that kid can act. And I know it's part special effects, but that scene where she's in the basement with her sister's boyfriend and her face morphs just about made me piss myself. No, <laughs> no joke. In that moment, my friend, her husband and I, all kind of did this mounting scream in unison with each other as soon as her face started morphing. Like, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God. Like, it was, oh, oh, so scary. Uh, this was also the first movie that made me face the fact that I'm still totally in love with Henry Thomas. Uh, Elliot from E.T. for you younger folks, but I fell in love with him in Cloak and Dagger. And I'd like to personally thank Mike Flanagan for continuing to work with Mr. Thomas uh, and keeping him on our screens in various forms because hot priest. Yes, please. <laughs> that said, I really like this movie and the characters are well written and relatable. And as my friend Andy and I always say when watching the many horror movies set in some sprawling Victorian beauty like the Xander residence, you have a lovely home. I don't really have much more to add to that other than I agree. I like this movie way more than I should have for a prequel to a movie that I have not seen. Right. Also, totally agree. Lulu Wilson is an amazing young actress. Can't wait to see like what she does, uh, you know, throughout her career. And Henry Thomas is still adorable. Back off. I think. <laughs> All right. You, you can have him. I think my hot priest fetish sorry Spencer you had to find out this way uh, <laughs> actually started with Joaquin Phoenix and Quill hell yeah and then also sex in the city in the tv show Fleabag and now Flanagan um thank you <laughs> <laughs> thank you um pop culture for fetishizing priests and sexualizing them uh don't know if we need that but I guess it's kind of a thing now also, <laughs> when I was searching IMDb for Ouija, the movie Ouija Shark <laughs> oh. popped popped up. It looks like a total mystery science theater drunk watch for sure. And I am going to champion that movie, Mindy. <laughs> uh, I think we need to watch this movie and maybe talk about it in an upcoming episode and report back to everyone. I'm down. But... It's about a group of teenage girls that summon an ancient man-eating shark after messing with a spirit board that washes up on the beach. An occult specialist must enter the shark's realm to rid this world of the deadly spirit ghost once and for all. It has a 1.4 rating <laughs> on IMDb. Amazing. It mixes like, it, it sounds perfect, but it also sounds like it's like this mix of like popular genres for a quick like cash grab like let's do the Ouija theme and Sharknado is really popular so let's work that in somehow right yeah I I'm so down it sounds like <laughs> it sounds like it's awesome I want to see it Ouija shark uh, anyways just a little bit of trivia before we move on to the next movie the film was shot digitally but Mike Flanagan, in order to give the movie kind of a retro feel to the film, he added elements in post-production to give the appearance of a movie shot on film, which included cigarette burns about every 20 minutes or so, um, which I actually 
was noticing that and I was like, is my Netflix fucked up or? <laughs> I was actually waiting for you to ask about that while we were watching it. I was wondering if that like was a, it, that was like an Easter egg or like a, it like it meant something. But I noticed that too. So I'm glad you brought that up because I was like, should I like, am I missing something that, that I'm supposed to be paying attention to every time they would pop up? But yeah, I agree. I, I and then I kind of forgot about it. And yeah, honestly, dude, do we even watch that on, is that a Netflix Film, I forgot where we watched this. Yeah, I don't remember, but it was streaming, that's for sure. Yeah, I just thought maybe there was oh, yeah. something wrong with our, our streaming service. But um, <laughs> anyways, uh, so yeah, he used that, um, which, you know, back back in the olden days would signal a change of reels for a film that was being shown on a projector. And they actually talk about them in Fight Club. I was just going to oh, say, for yes. a fantastic example of this, please see Fight Club. Yes. Yes, you are right. Flanagan said he wanted to create this movie as if it was shot in 1971. So some of the other techniques that he used included antique lenses, scene fades, and camera zooms instead of steadicams. Other simulated techniques that he used was dust on the negative, subtle warping of the audio track, reel jumps, and split diopter, where both the foreground and the background are in focus. So interesting. But yeah, yeah it definitely had that uh, kind of 70s horror movie feel to it. So, and I really appreciate that about movies. Um, yeah. Agreed. I know that uh, Rob Zombie, I don't know if Rob Zombie uses the same techniques as Flanagan to get that effect, but all of his movies have that that feel that they were shot back in the 70s, which yeah. I love. Yeah, agreed. Um, I'm glad you like this one, Sharon, because I know you, I kept saying you should watch this and you were like, meh. And so I'm glad you liked it. Yeah, I didn't know what to expect really, but I, you know, kind of thought it was going to be another bad, uh, you know, bad movie in a series of uh, not, eh, whatever. Yeah, I I liked it. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, well, let's move on to the next movie, which is called Before I Wake, which is the third film to be released in 2016. Uh, This synopsis comes straight from our friends at IMDb. A couple adopt an orphan child whose dreams and nightmares manifest physically as he sleeps. It stars Kate Bosworth, Jacob Tremblay, and Annabeth Gish. The last two are repeat actors in Flanagan's work. Uh, I have to say that this is my least favorite of Flanagan's movies, uh, but it was still good. Of course, all the acting is good in all of his work, but especially in this one from Jacob Tremblay, who made a name for himself in Room, which came out the year before. I agree with you. This is also my least favorite of his movies. Uh, but the one thing about this movie I will say is it has a bit more of an optimistic ending than some of his other films. So maybe this is why it's my least favorite. Um, (laughs) We like depressing, scary movies. We like dark shit. Um, But in an interview by Jacob Hill for SlashFilm.com, Flanagan says, quote, it's funny. I look back at some of my early work when I watch Absentia, for example, I'm like, wow, that's bleak. (laughs) Oculus is bleak. That optimism has kind of grown in me as I've gotten older, and it's grown in me because I had children, and I want to be optimistic for them. 
I want the world to be okay for them. And it's because I met my wife and my life congealed into a really positive thing for the first time. I wanted to believe in those things. I wanted to have faith in the existence, in the universe and purpose and justice. I want to believe all of that. It's comforting for my kids. I can't imagine them growing up in a world that is completely indifferent and hopeless. That wrecks me. I can't let it happen. So maybe also because we don't have kids. So we just want the world to be (laughs) bleak Uh. and meaningless. Just kidding. Um, But with that being said, this movie still has a lot of creepy imagery in it. So it's not like entirely uh, rainbows and unicorns. (laughs) <laughs> or but I should say actually butterflies I could see that uh those butterflies were gorgeous there were and a yet, lot of butterflies in this movie they were and I do think they like that was like one of my favorite parts is that's like where they're just like over the butterflies are just like overtaking their like living room and dining room it was just really lovely mm-hmm. um and yes, the acting was really good, especially from the tiny lead actor. I, I'm sorry, I refuse to see Room, especially right now, because emotionally I just can't. But it's pretty clear that Jacob Tremblay is the cutest. <laughs> <laughs> and since this was my first time seeing him in action, I think he lived up to the hype, for sure. But okay, full disclosure, I don't like Kate Bosworth. I have no logical reasoning for this. I haven't seen much of her work, but whenever I do see her in anything, as my mother would say, she looks like she has a puss on her face, which is basically my mom's way of explaining resting bitch face. And this movie didn't improve my opinion, as I didn't really like her character, so maybe she's an acting genius. But you're just going to judge her by her RBF. (laughs) Yep, pretty much. (laughs) That's all right. You don't have to like every every actor actress in the world well um, and i think that like i think also that it was scripted that way and i think that i was supposed to because she did some i mean you know she did some not great shit for a while that her husband calls her out on so i think that that was maybe the point which so basically i'm saying that flanagan i think his script was successful and so i think probably maybe this is the first movie i've liked her in <laughs> but no, I, I agree. Uh, her character uh, did some pretty horrible things to uh, poor, cute little Jacob Tremblay throughout most of the movie. Totally. Um, but I think she redeemed herself at the end. Uh, just a little bit of quick trivia. Flanagan had repeatedly objected to the film being marketed as a horror movie and instead referred to it as a fable or supernatural drama. Also, none of the butterflies that appear in the film early on have any antenna, but after a classmate draws antenna on one of Cody's pictures, Cody played by Jacob Tremblay, uh, after she draws antennas on his picture of a butterfly, all the butterflies and moths in the film have antenna, which is a small detail that shows how Cody's dreams are not only childlike, but also easily influenced by others. And I did not notice that. I didn't either until uh, you. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. That's really awesome. Yeah. Talk about attention to detail. Jesus Christ. Agreed. All right, so I think this is a good place to leave off for now. We're going to continue our discussion about Mike Flanagan and his work on our next episode where we talk about Gerald's Game, Dr. Sleep, The Haunting of Hill House, as well as some of Mike Flanagan's upcoming projects. 
We will have links in the episode description to the articles that we use for our research, as well as the link to Flanagan's short film, Oculus Chapter 3, The Man with the Plan, if you want to watch that. We'll also include the list of the other podcasts that Flanagan and also his lovely wife, Kate Siegel, have been on if you want to check out those interviews. We think you should. If you want to tell us what your favorite work by Flanagan is and why, please email us. If you have any ghost stories, scary stories, stories about Ouija boards, or possessed mirrors that you want to share, definitely write to us. Also, if you have any home invasion stories that you would like to share, we would love to hear what happened. Hopefully, you remained unscathed in that situation, though. Anyway, email us at uh, horrorstalkhorror at gmail.com. And also, one last thing I want to say before we sign off. Uh, if you do follow us on Instagram, we added a new highlight category to our Insta stories titled Black Lives Matter, abbreviated BLM. There's a lot of information on there about how you can help bring justice for people like Brianna Taylor, Elijah McLean, and Althea Bernstein. And if you don't know who they are, I urge you to go and read their stories and why we all need to help bring justice to them and their families. There's also information on there about the importance of voting and how it directly affects the criminal justice system. I've been trying to add new stories every day. So if you are interested, please check that out. We hope you are all staying safe and healthy and please be kind to each other and help each other. And as always... Thanks for getting creepy with us. Sharon, you want a beer? Uh, oh my God.